0: We are in the book of Isaiah, we're in the 27th chapter. Lord willing, we're going to cover chapters 27 and 28. We did so in the afternoon class, but I was out of breath getting that much done, so we'll do what we can tonight to get through these two chapters. We uh, just came through, once again, a a look at the millennium and what is so incredible, and we're going to see that again this evening is here as God gives to Isaiah this prophecy, he, he, it's, a, it's a prophecy from the beginning to end um, of, of looking to the future, and much of it's going to be judgment. Uh, the people of God during Isaiah's day were, were living horribly wicked lives. There was so much idolatry involved. There was much, we see tonight, drunkenness on the part of, uh, across the board, but even the priests. Uh, and uh, many, many wicked sins, and so God said judgment is going to fall, and uh, much of Isaiah is that judgment. But what's incredible to me is he talks um, about judgment, 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 and then as if he's to say, now just take a step back and catch your breath, and then he looks to the millennium, and he takes a prophetical look for the Jews that have come through the horrible time of the tribulation and they have made it into the millennium now and they're looking back at what they've come through and they're thanking God for bringing them through and now they're rejoicing, singing this wonderful praise song to God in the millennium and then he goes back and says, okay, let's get real now. Here's where you are. Judgment's coming once again. And so even tonight, we're going to be seeing that back and forth. But uh, to begin with, if you've got notes or taking notes, Roman number one, another view from the millennium. Another view from the millennium. And there's notes. Um, Michael, would you mind running over and getting a set there for Judy? I don't think you got one. We want to get her a set of notes because that's all you come to church for is the notes. Anybody else need a set of notes? righty. Uh, another view from the millennium. Letter A is Satan will be bound during the millennium. Verse number 1, In that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. This chapter, chapter 27, follows the topic of the previous one, that of the millennial reign of Christ. The imagery here of the Leviathan, which we see in Job, Called here a piercing and crooked serpent along with the dragon in the sea are probably in this reference references to Satan as the Lord assumes his leadership one of his many responsibilities will involve binding Satan and casting him into the bottomless pit where he will remain for a thousand years revelation 20 verse 1 and following I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed a little season. So chapter 27 begins with Satan being bound during the millennium. That's the introduction. Let's have a prayer, and then we'll take off running. Thank you dear lord for your love and your blessing and thank you for giving us this amazing book of isaiah dear lord there are so many wonderful truths found in this book but over and over we see lord you telling the people of israel that they're going to be judged and lord they didn't believe you and so we know from history that judgment did fall but what is amazing to me lord is your mercy Instead of giving up on your people and really obliterating them, Lord, you showed them when in the millennium you would restore your relationship with them. And so, Lord, I thank you for being a merciful God. And I thank you for repeatedly revealing that to us in this book. So, Lord, help us tonight to get a a clear image of who you are as we study these two chapters. For we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Letter B. God's commitment to His people. Verse or number one, God identifies His beloved people. In verse number two, "In that day, sing ye unto her a vineyard of red wine." The focus here is shifted to God's people, Israel, calling them a vineyard of red wine. Interestingly, the Hebrew literally translated, reads, "A vineyard of desirable, pleasant wine." God was reminding his people how he felt about them. They were his chosen people. And he still loved them, told of a day in the future when he would be close to them once again. Isaiah 5, 1. Now I will sing to my beloved, a well-beloved, a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it and also made a wine press therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. Number two, God commits to keeping Israel in that day. Verse three, I the Lord do keep it. I will water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I will keep it night and day. As a gardener would keep his garden, God says to Israel, I will keep you. God revealed his commitment to Israel's care. The millennium will give God the opportunity to care for them like he desired all along. But because of their wickedness up until that point, he could not. Number three, God's wrath would no longer be toward his people. In verse four, he says, fury is not in me. Who would set the briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. The commentary biblical illustrator comments It is not because I am cruel or revengeful that I must thus afflict my people, but because she is a vineyard overrun with thorns or briars, on account of which I must pass through her and consume her or burn them out of her. The other possibility is this I am no longer angry with my people. Oh, that their enemies, as thorns and briars, would array themselves against me, that I might rush upon them and consume them. As always, God is in complete control of his emotions. Here, we see him display fury. God was angry with Israel for their idolatry, and angry toward the nations that rose up against his people. So, there is truth in both of these views. Isaiah 10, 17, And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. Number four, God longed to restore a relationship of peace. In verse five, Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. God was so desirous of a peaceful relationship with his people, no longer tense from Israel's rebellious ways. You parents understand what I'm talking about here. When when you you have a child that is rebellious, and perhaps they're compliant on the outside, but you know by their facial expression that they're not compliant in their heart. And so there's always that tension. You're almost afraid to tell them to do something because you know they're going to react to it there's that there's that tension oh sure they will do it if you force them to do it that's how God was with Israel sure they would do it if he forced them to do it but there was this tension back and forth and he said I long for a time where there's peace between us God promised that as they reached out to him for peace he would grant it blessing them with a peaceful relationship number five God will firmly establish His people in Israel. Verse 6, He shall cause them that come of Jacob to take root. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Isaiah is written very poetically. He used lots of metaphors, lots of imagery here. And once again, he's calling Israel a a vineyard or now a, a plant. Continuing his vineyard metaphor, As the millennium begins, God will cause Israel to be planted in the land and to become real established there. They will greatly prosper and will affect the whole world with their righteousness. Now let her see God's purpose behind chastening. Number one, though God had chastened His people, it had never been as severe as with others. Verse 7, hath he smitten him as he smote those that smote him, or is he slain according to the slaughter of them that are slain by him? By means of two rhetorical questions, the Lord reminded Israel that he had never smote or chastened them as he had other nations. God had faithfully, had, had faithfully chastened Israel for their sin, but not with the severity he had others. In Jeremiah 30:11, For I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. But I will correct thee in measure, and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. I will bring judgment. I will chasten you. But I will not completely destroy you like I did other nations, he said. Number two. God had chastened, not destroyed them for their wickedness. Verse 8, In measure when it shooteth forth, thou wilt debate with it. He stayeth his rough wind in the day of the east wind. (laughs) Again, using the imagery of Israel as a vineyard. God told them that when they went their own way, God debated or contended with them. He had brought chastening, but never destroying them altogether. He had kept the hot winds that came from the east, drying and causing to wither all vegetation in its path from afflicting them. God's purpose was to chasten them for their sin, but not do away with them. We know here in Colorado what it's like to have hot winds, hot dry winds. We know the fire, Danger that's caused by hot, dry winds. But I was surprised yesterday, my wife on her weather app, she's always checking the weather of Philadelphia and uh, Green Sea, South Carolina, where the kids are, and Knoxville, or uh, Louisville, Tennessee, Louisville, Kentucky, (laughs) where our kids are. And so yesterday she was checking what the weather's like down in South Carolina. There was a fire uh, density, a fire alert saying because of the hot, dry winds in South Carolina, 50, mi- 50 minutes in interior from the coast, they were worried about fire damage there, which really surprised me, there. Here, no, it's, it's an it's a, uh, annual thing. But there, okay, so take that same concept of the hot, dry winds. What does that do for vegetation? Dries them out. That's why we have to irrigate here. Didn't irrigate in Illinois. I never ran a sprinkler in Illinois, because that makes your grass grow more. you got to mow it more. But here, if you don't irrigate, if you don't sprinkle, your grass is going to die. Why? Because of the hot winds. That's what's being described here. Number three, God had used chastening to rid Israel of their idolatrous practices. Verse 9, By this, therefore, shall the iniquity of Jacob be purged. And this is all the fruit to take away his sin when he maketh all the stones of the altar as chalk stones that are beaten in sunder the groves and images shall not stand up throughout Israel's history God had brought chastening to purge them of their sin the fruit of God's tree or we could say the end product of his chastening or the fruit of of his product, was to rid them of their sin. God told them here how he had repeatedly judged them for their idolatrous practices, and he provides here an illustration. Israel's covered, I'm told, with limestone rocks. When those rocks are burned, they can turn to chalk, or called chalk stones here. The thought is, as God turned up the heat on Israel for their sin, he purged them of their groves and images. Those idolatrous practices that they kept doing and kept doing and kept doing, God had to turn the heat up more and more and more to rid them or to purge them from those sins. Number four, Jerusalem had been destroyed, but Israel had not been forgotten. Verse 10 Yet the defensed city shall be desolate, and the habitation forsaken, and left like a wilderness. There shall the calf feed, and there shall he lie down and consume the branches thereof. God reminded Israel of the times their city had been destroyed and left desolate. Assyria and Babylon ravaged the city of Jerusalem. As Babylon finally carried away everyone but the very old and insignificant, leaving the city desolate, smoldering, and in ruins. His chastening had been harsh. But not with the intent of utter annihilation. He did not completely destroy his people. Number five, God used heathen nations to bring judgment on his erring people. Verse 11: When the boughs thereof are withered, they shall be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it's a people of no understanding. Therefore, he that made them will not have mercy on them, and he that formed them, We'll show them no favor. What do you do with the branches that fall off the tree? You gather them up. If you're in the country, you burn them. You 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 get rid of them. That's what he's saying. These branches were they fell off. They're broken off. They're going to be gathered together by the women. He says here and set on fire. So as dried branches are collected and burned, so did God with the peoples who had forsaken God. His people had been chastened by a host of heathen nations, the Assyrians. The Babylonians, the Romans, the Nazis, and eventually the Antichrist in the tribulation. Psalm 106, verse 40, Therefore was the wrath of the Lord kindled against His people, insomuch that He abhorred His own inheritance. And He gave them into the hand of the heathen, and they that hated them ruled over them. Letter D, God's plan for His people. Number one, God will gather his people from the immediate area. Oh, the, because of the diaspora, Jews were scattered around the world. And he says here, he's going to, in that day, regather them from the immediate area, verse 12. And it shall come to pass, in that day, that the Lord shall beat off from the channel of the river under the stream of Egypt, and ye shall be gathered one by one, O ye children of Israel. A regathering, one by one. And he tells us what this geographical thumbprint will look like. In the day of the Lord, or the establishment of the millennium, the Lord will draw his people from the surrounding region to Jerusalem. The phrase, the Lord shall beat off from, refers to either beating the olive trees to make the berries drop from harvest, or beating out the grain by threshing. Both are with the intent of bringing in a harvest. The region mentioned is from the channel of the river or the river Euphrates to the stream of Egypt or the stream along the southern boundary of the Holy Land. In Psalm 72, 8, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. Number two, God will draw His people from the far reaches. Verse 13, And it shall come to pass in that day, that the great trumpet shall be blown and they shall come which were ready to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. There will be a day in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown. My mind goes to what I played in school. I played a brass instrument with three valves and you have spit valves there, you could, you could blow and the spit would come out of it. And so my mind says that's what's to be blown but I don't think so. In that day, they weren't playing these brass trumpets. They were playing a ram's horn, typically. And so in that great day, it will be very possible, I think, that the horn blown will be a ram's horn, and they can be very deafeningly loud. Bill Oliver, one Saturday morning, at our men's prayer breakfast, brought a ram's horn. And he said, now fellas, you've got to know this, this, this room that we're in is not that big. And this makes a very loud noise when I blow it. He was right. We had to cover our ears because in that room it was deafeningly loud, that ram's horn. So here we have a great trumpet being blown. Um, in the beginning of the millennium, a trumpet of jubilee will sound out signaling those scattered of Israel to return to their homeland. The Gentile world here, represented by Assyria and Egypt, will be home to many of these scattered Jews who in that day will come to Jerusalem with a sincere desire to worship God. Now, is that the condition of Jerusalem today? Are the Jews coming back with a sincere desire to submit and worship God today? And I submit, no. But there's coming a day where the Jews returning will come with a desire to worship God. Roman numeral 2. Now we start the next chapter. The reason for two chapters is the one we just covered was such a short chapter, I wanted to jump into the second one here. Number 2, judgment is coming. Letter A, God's warning of judgment to Israel. Chapter 28, verse 1. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim. Whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which are on the hand or head of the fat valleys of them that are overcome with wine. So we just came out of chapter 27 to look from the millennium. Now we're going back to judgment, back to looking toward the oncoming judgment. This chapter begins with a warning to the ten northern tribes in Israel, called here the crown of pride and the drunkards of Ephraim which is another name for the Israel or for the Northern Ten Tribes. God identified the sins of His people, namely, here they are, pride and drunkenness. Captivity is in their near future as a result of their immoral behavior. It says their glory had faded as a fading flower. The head of the fat valleys refers to the capital city of Samaria, the fat valleys or the lush valleys. They were being destroyed as a people by their abuse of alcohol. Number one, Assyria would become God's judgment of choice. Verse two, behold, the Lord hath a mighty and strong one, which as a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, as a flood of mighty waters overflowing, shall cast down to the earth, With the hand the Lord warned the northern kingdom that he had prepared a mighty and strong one whom we now know to be Assyria under Shalmaneser their king they would rain destruction down upon the northern kingdom as hail a violent storm and a flood and this prediction occurred in 722 BC and you might remember not too many weeks ago I talked to this I talked to you about this this northern part of Israel Two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, northern ten tribes, there to the very top, uttermost north part, Zebulun, Naphtali, and a part of Ephraim, were those tribes from which the invaders came. They came through those regions, and so they were always on the lookout. It was always an area of tension up in there, and they were the first ones to be attacked at the very far north region here. Uh, Number two, Israel would be suddenly destroyed. Verse three, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, shall be trodden under feet, and the glorious beauty, which is on the head of the fat valley, shall be a fate. Did I read that? Am I rereading that? You're not sure. Um, It doesn't matter, I'll finish it up. And as the hasty fruit before the summer, which when he had looketh up, he seeth it, While it is yet in his hand, he eateth it up. Letter B. Judah's brief glimmer of righteousness. Number one. God will be held high in Judah. God will be held high in Judah. Verse five. In that day shall the Lord of hosts be for a crown of glory and for a diadem of beauty, Unto the residue of his people that day likely refers to the captivity of Israel and destruction of their land by Assyria the Lord will become a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the southern kingdom or the residue of his people during the reign of Hezekiah over Judah God was worshiped and placed in his proper position remember Hezekiah was a good king he was a great king and God blessed the nation of Judah under the reign of Hezekiah, even though um, his predecessor was incredibly wicked. The people people of Judah had been wicked. Hezekiah comes along and becomes this incredible leader. And the people become compliant under his leadership, but compliant only on the outside, not on the inside. Their idolatry was still there underneath the surface. Their idolatrous hearts under Hezekiah. And Isaiah 41:16, "Thou shalt fan them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them, and thou shalt rejoice in the Lord and shalt glory in the Holy One of Israel." So God was worshipped and placed in His proper position. as Israel was being attacked, God once again was glorified in Judah, the southern kingdom. Number two, God promised wisdom and strength to Judah. Verse 6, and for a spirit of judgment to him that sitteth in judgment, and for strength to them that turn the battle to the gate. God promised a spirit of judgment, or a spirit of wisdom, to the good king of Judah, Hezekiah. Them that turn the battle to the gate, describes Judah pushing the enemy back to their own gates. And you recall how God blessed the army of Hezekiah and there were great victories under his leadership. Wisdom and strength would come from God as Hezekiah followed him. Letter C. Israel's drunkenness. Number one. Alcohol had destroyed the northern kingdom. The ten tribes. Verse 7. But they also have erred through wine, and through strong drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through strong drink. They are swallowed up of wine. They are out of the way through strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. They're so drunk they can't even walk straight, he's saying. Once again, God draws attention to the wicked sins of drunkenness that had plagued the northern kingdom. Alcohol had destroyed their morals and their discernment. It had greatly weakened the integrity of their nation. Proverbs 20 and verse 1 Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Number two, drunkenness pervaded everyday life in Ephraim, the northern kingdom. Verse 8, it says, For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness, so that there is no place clean. The disgusting results of drunkenness covered the tables where people gathered to eat. We're talking about the public venues, these these would be what we would consider the restaurants, they were all covered in vomit there because there's so much drunkenness, suggested here also may be the tables used in the temple for spiritual duties, meaning the priests are drunks as well, and suggested are the tables in the very temple itself are now covered with the vomit of the drunkards who work in the temple in proverbs 31 verse 4 it is not for kings o lemuel it is not for kings to drink wine nor for princes strong drink i will not tell you the the grossness of what is being described in verse number eight as it says they're full of vomit and filthiness but just understand that god is describing the very worst that can come from a person as they get sick from, the, uh, from their drink. Letter D, no one would listen to God. Number one, God could find no one to teach. And if it weren't so tragic, this statement would be funny. In verse number nine, whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make under, uh, to make understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk. And drawn from the breasts God says who is left that I can teach all the adults are drunk I can't teach them the only ones subject not subject to the immoral vice of drunkenness were the infants still on their mother's milk number two they were like rebellious young children and this was very enlightening to me I'd never looked at these verses with this vantage Verse 10, for precept, must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And of course, we use this oftentimes to talk about how we teach and how we learn. We build people's lives little by little. You're building one spiritual truth after another. But notice, God... Bemoaned the deplorable condition of the northern kingdom by describing them as young children needing to be taught carefully and slowly. Similar to an elementary teacher reviewing the ABCs and learning their numbers, they had ignored God and all his teachings, like a rebellious child in the classroom. Jeremiah 5:4, therefore I said, Surely these are poor, they are foolish. For they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. And we're going to come back to this very thought we just talked about in another verse shortly. Letter E. Warning against what was coming. Again, this is interesting. Number one, foreign languages would be a sign of coming judgment. Foreign languages. Verse 11. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to his, his people. Stammering lips and another tongue. God warned them that in the near future, Israel would be invaded by those speaking a different language, a foreign language, a foreign tongue, Assyria. Early on, God had warned that judgment against His people would come from a foreign-speaking nation. In some way, other languages would be a sign of His coming judgment. Deuteronomy 28:49. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flieth, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand. So here we see a foreign tongue as a sign of judgment, a warning of judgment. We also see an eagle, as swift as the eagle flieth. And the nation of Babylon had one of their icons as the eagle. And we know that God used Babylon to come and to destroy uh, Israel and then Judah. This was brought to fulfillment in the New Testament when tongues were introduced prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. So here's destruction, 70 A.D. Just before that, foreign languages are once again talked about. 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22. In the law it is written, Paul wrote, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Notice, wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Paul said in 1 Corinthians that tongues are for a sign of impending judgment, which fell in 70 A.D. not long after. Number two, the people rejected the amazing peace God offered. Verse 12, for to whom it said, This is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. God had made peace readily available to his people, but they refused to hear anything he had to say. In Isaiah 30 and verse 15, for thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall ye be saved, in quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, and ye would not. I offered peace, but ye rejected it. Number three, Because of Israel's immaturity, they were about to be destroyed. Here we are again. Notice carefully, verse 13. But the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Because God's word was treated as superficial and burdensome, just like an elementary student may view learning in the classroom. God was about to turn his people from the northern kingdom over to the Assyrians. Number four God turns to warn Judah and Jerusalem. So Assyria is coming. Here's the northern kingdom up here, southern kingdom down here. Assyria is coming from way up north. They come through Israel up north. Judah's fine, Judah's fine, Judah's fine, Judah's fine. Uh-oh, Judah's getting nervous, nervous, nervous. <laughs> See, They were fine when they were attacking north, but the closer they got here, and realized they're not going to stop, now they start getting nervous. And why did, why did Assyria not stop? Because Judah started following the very same practices as did Israel. That's why. Verse 14, wherefore hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men, that rule this people. Notice, which is in Jerusalem, Judah, Jerusalem. Here, God shifts from his discussion regarding the northern kingdom to Judah and Jerusalem. There were those in Judah behaving just as wickedly as were their northern counterparts. God warned them to listen to his word, especially the rulers number five, there was much foolishness in the ranks of Judah's leaders. Verse 15, because ye have said, we have made a covenant with death and with hell. Are we at agreement? When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us. For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood have we hid ourselves. Notice he talks about a covenant, a covenant with death and hell. Picture, if you will, a secret, secret society. And all these men get together and they wear the same uniforms and perhaps have pointy hoods. And they slight their wrists and they put it blood together. Now they're blood brothers. And they enter into an agreement, a covenant. And in this sacred trust, they go into a covenant with death and hell, thinking that that covenant is now going to protect them from everything that comes their way. We're going to see God laughing at this Covenant. In spite of Hezekiah's devotion to the Lord God, those serving under him were still wicked-hearted. They had made a mockery of God and believed they were somehow impervious to the threats of impending invasion. They mockingly claimed they had made a covenant that they could not be hurt by the Assyrians. They somehow put more faith in their empty covenant than they did on the intelligence reports that Assyria was on their way to their doorstep letter F a bright future for Jerusalem once again in the midst of all this this uh, this this bad news God stops to give them a breath of fresh air number one God would one day lay an unmovable foundation in Zion verse 16 therefore thus saith the Lord God behold I lay in Zion for a foundation a stone A tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. And of course, who are we talking about here? Jesus, right? A foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. So in the midst of all this this horrible news, God says, I'm going to give you a picture, a sneak peek of the coming Messiah. God declared a day was coming in which He would lay a solid foundation in Jerusalem, namely the Messiah, or Jesus Christ Himself. All who would choose to believe on Him would not be confounded. Romans 9.33 As it is written, Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. Number two, God will one day restore righteousness in Jerusalem. Verse 17, judgment also will I lay to the line and righteousness to the plummet. So before I go on, notice there's a line here and a plummet, a line and a plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters shall overflow the hiding place. So as a plumb line is used to determine a vertical plane, so the day of the Lord When Christ sets up his kingdom, will usher in judgment and righteousness. Like a hailstorm, God's judgment would rain down upon the wicked in Judah as he had in the northern kingdom. In spite of any covenant with death and hell, God would soon come without warning. Letter G, more immediate concerns. More immediate concerns. Number one, Their foolish covenant would prove worthless. Verse 18: And your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. This ludicrous agreement they had made with death in the grave, or hell, would be destroyed when God initiates his judgment by means of the Assyrians. Their agreement would mean nothing to the overpowering troops. (laughs) They'd laugh at it. Number two, news of a Syrian troop movement paralyzed all before them. Notice verse 19. From the time that it goeth forth, it shall take you. For morning by morning shall it pass over, by day and by night. And it shall be a vexation only to understand the report, the report. As the report comes, understanding it will cause a vexation and they're gonna receive it day and night, and day and night, morning after morning. News of the advancement of the Assyrian army spread across the countryside. Daily couriers would bring up updates as to their movements each of which became more and more of a vexation or a fearful dread to the people. Number three, life was about to become wretched in Judea. Remember, they're coming from the north all the way to the south. Verse 20, for the bed is shorter than a man can stretch himself on it, and the covering narrower than that he can wrap himself in it. It's It's a funny picture of a very big man in a very small bed with a very small sheet. (laughs) He can't get comfortable, can't get warm. Described as being left cold and uncomfortable, Assyria's invasion would make life in Judah miserable. Number four, God would soon turn against His own people. Verse 21, For the Lord shall rise up as in Mount Perizim. He shall be wroth as in the valley of Gibeon that he may do his work, his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. God gave his people great victories at Mount Perizim and Gibeon. David led his people to a great victory over the Philistines at Perizim, again at Gibeon. Like God raised up against his enemies, he would soon rise up against his own people. It would be strange for God to attack his own people but judgment would soon fall upon Judah. Number 5. Isaiah warned to take God's prophecy seriously in verse 22. Now therefore be ye not mockers, lest your bands be made strong, for I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a consumption even determined upon the whole earth. Isaiah warned his people to not mock the warnings of invasion. God had warned them, and failure to heed His warning would result in their bands being made strong, or they would be in a strong bondage. And again, the word earth here can mean land, suggesting the land of Judah. Letter H, God gave Isaiah another message. Verse 23, Give ye ear and hear my voice, hearken and hear my speech. So God spoke to Isaiah And he proceeded to relay God's message of judgment. Number one, God gives man the knowledge to plant and harvest. This is all part of a message. Verses 24 and following doth the plowman plow all day to sow? These are rhetorical questions, with the answer being yes. Why does the farmer plow all day? In order to sow his seed. Doth he open and break the clods of his ground? Of course, yes. When he hath made plain the face thereof, doth he not cast abroad the fitches and the scatter the cumin, and cast in the principal wheat and the appointed barley and the rye in their place? For his God doth instruct him to discretion and doth teach him. So after these rhetorical questions, with the obvious question being, answer being yes, he then sows the various seeds he desires for harvest. God gave him that knowledge. And continues to instruct him. Verse 27. For the fitches, which I think are dillweed or dill seed, are not threshed with a threshing instrument, neither is a cartwheel turned about upon the cumin, but the fitches are beaten with a staff, and the cumin with a rod. Number two, different crops are harvested differently. Different crops, these These fitches and cumin are very delicate, delicate plants. And so when it comes time for harvesting them, you're not going to bring in a combine, you say, to harvest them. They're going to be harvested much more gently. Number three, God's threshing would not destroy His people. Verse 28, bread corn is bruised because He will not ever be threshing it nor break it with the wheel of his cart, nor bruise it with his horsemen. The grains used to make bread are hardier than the delicate cumin and fitch. They can hold up to more severe means of harvesting, that which would destroy the finer grains, like the sledge drug over it to crush and separate the grain from the hard shell. His threshing would be for a time, but not forever like the grain carefully monitored as to not be broken under the wheel of the cart. So, God would not allow His people to be completely broken. The thought here is that God was about to thresh His people by means of the Assyrian army. He would judge them, but not destroy them. Lastly, number four, God's judgment comes from a loving and merciful heart. This is the capstone to the whole chapter. Here we see, in the midst of all this judgment upon His people, God is a merciful God. Verse 29, This also cometh forth from the Lord of hosts, which is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. As the knowledge and skill to harvest grains comes from the Lord, so is this message of warning to His people. God warns them because He had not given up on them. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. So we see God saying, I'm going to judge, your, judge you, I'm going to bring judgment. But ever so often he's saying, now let's take a step back. Let's go to the future in the millennium when I'm going to restore my relationship with, with you once again. There's a merciful God. Praise God for that. Let's thank him for this study. Dear Lord, thank you for your love and your blessing and thank you for going with us. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to gain the spiritual truths from these chapters you have for us. And thank you for being a merciful God. Lord, we love you. Help us to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.